Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Enough Wicker. Today, Dr. Elizabeth Yuko joins us, who is, among other things, an expert on the intersection of pop culture and bioethics. That she is. She's also an award-winning journalist and an adjunct professor of ethics at Fordham University. She's been published in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Rolling Stone, The Atlantic, just to name a few. And she actually came on our radar for her 2016 TED Talk called Everything I Know About Bioethics I Learned from the Golden Girls. Welcome, Dr. Elizabeth Yuko. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're very excited to talk about, uh, you know, as something that probably none of us have ever thought of. <laughs> And until you brought this beautiful TED talk and, and a series of articles and headlines to our attention. So I think, I think I'd love to start um, because I certainly needed this background and I'm sure some of our listeners do as well. Uh, if you could just give uh, you know, a, a layman's introduction to what bioethics is. Sure. Um, and I think where we are right now, well, after the past year, uh, the pandemic, in case you're listening in the future, and the <laughs> pandemic is over by that point. Um, <laughs> that, fingers crossed. Yeah, I think we have a much better idea of what bioethics is because we've been living through these situations where everyone has had to make these ethical and moral decisions, sometimes on a daily basis, but we might not have the terminology. So to back up, um, Bioethics involves looking at all the difficult, complex questions involved with medicine, healthcare, research, public health, which has been a big one. And um, really anytime that there's no clear answer, trying to weigh potential risks and potential benefits and see what the best option might be. Um, Bioethicists can work in hospitals and you know in a clinical situation and help advise patients and families and the medical staff on not offering medical advice, but more coming in and saying, okay, you're faced with this very difficult decision with a sick loved one. Um, you know, here are the options the doctor has given you. Let's think through the positives and negatives and you know, pros and cons of each to help you make a more informed decision because uh, informed consent, uh, which is again, something probably everyone has encountered at the doctor's office signing HIPAA forms. Um, right, yeah. That sort of thing. Well, I mean, signing them after sort of reading forms. Uh, yeah, it's an important part of the ethical practice of medicine and research, just knowing that what you're getting involved with, whether it's a treatment, whether it's a vaccine, whether it's a research study that you know, you go in knowing everything you could possibly know and feel like you're fully informed and are able to make the best decision you can. So um, that is part of it. Um, and then, yeah, public health ethics has been a big issue, uh, well, forever. And it's something that the Golden Girls did address specifically in a few episodes, which I'm sure we will discuss later. Um, but it's the idea of the autonomy of one person or a family or a bubble or whatever versus the autonomy or the good of the public. So the idea that sometimes we have to limit our personal freedoms and liberties in order to stop a pandemic, for example. And 
in America, we have been taught really since we were small children, like this is the land of freedom and liberty. And every part of American mythology really leans into that. Everything is your decision. It's based on you. And so when we've gotten to this point where that's not accurate anymore, you know, if you don't wear a mask, that's not just about you. You're endangering a whole bunch of other people. If you don't follow these protocol protocols, you, um, yeah, it's not just about you. And the longer that you don't do what you're supposed to do, the longer that this pandemic will go on. And so that's been something that's, I think we've seen basically every day for at least a year now, um, that type of struggle. And um, so, yeah, lots and lots of bioethics questions <laughs> popping up. <laughs> Yeah, the, the intersect, because the first thing that came to mind was the Hippocratic Oath, right? Where it's like very straightforward, like, you're a doctor, don't hurt people <laughs> on purpose, right? Yeah. And like you said, give them all the information that they need, but it's it's so much more than that. And I'm sure it comes up in really complicated situations. Like the thing that comes to mind, of course, now when you think of a more of a complex wrinkle is end of life, right? And it's yes, you can have all the information, but you still don't know, right? If like the person, if they don't have their DNR, like what, what's the right decision for, you know, my grandmother who's, you know, over 90 and just has been kind of in a coma, like all of those kind of situations. Yes, for sure. Um, and you're totally right because I mean, bioethics as a kind of a general topic has to do with the patient, which I talked about a lot on um, the public health aspect, but also, as you mentioned, the practitioners. So they're held to, um, I mean, the Hippocratic Oath is, you know, kind of its own thing, but like the American Medical Association Code of Ethics, American Nursing Association. So the professional associations that our practitioners are members of each have pretty clear guidelines spelled out. They're they basically are various versions of the same thing, but you know, tailored to the specific um, specific job. But yeah, it's having them, uh, you know, paying attention and following these guidelines, which again is something else that's been a huge problem this past year, especially in terms of limited resources. So when you have doctors making these calls that they've never had to make before regarding who gets a ventilator, a, an 85-year-old person who's old, or, you know, this 45-year-old person with a family and, you know, severe asthma, or, you know, it's whatever it is, like, um, that's another, another big part of it. Although in that particular situation, hospitals usually have guidelines in place, but I mean, when you're in an ER situation, you probably aren't going to be like, hold on, let me go check my, <laughs> my policy. And then the person could be dead by then. So, yeah. so it's, it's really for everybody. And then also one more thing, and then I'll be quiet about this. Um, there's a concept called moral stress or moral distress, um, which I've, so during the pandemic, I've applied to everybody, but traditionally it's seen in a medical context or a mental health context. Um, and it's basically the idea that when you're seeing, you know, doctors and nurses are, are morally and ethically exhausted from making all of these, and you know, life and death decisions one after another all day long and, you know, seeing death the way they have the past year, um, 
that it's making them harder to do their job. It's increasing rates of burnout. So, it, I mean, that's always an issue, but it's just been amped up considerably over the past year. So, um, and yeah, from the psychology point of view, you know, listening, <laughs> being having your job be listening to people's problems and struggles all day, every day. I, I mean, I know they're trained and can separate, you know, or work versus home, but still, I mean, that's a lot. Um, so um, yeah, so it's really been, like, it, it touches on everybody, whether or not we realize it, bioethics, that is. Um, this is so fascinating. I truly had really such limited knowledge of even what it, the field of bioethics was before this. And I did a little bit of research, obviously, before we, uh, our conversation with you. And it, it seems like such an obvious field that should exist, but isn't, you know, super, uh, people aren't super familiar with it. Um, so to kind of transition to the piece where you connected to the Golden Girls, um, I wanted to ask a little bit about your connection to the show. I think that even if you have are not familiar at all with the intricate plot points, you can understand why a show about four old ladies and bioethics would be something that you could connect. Um, but why specifically did you think to do that and um, what kind of came out of that for you? Um, sure. So I was young when the show, like pretty young when the show first came on the air, but I have memories of watching, especially the later seasons, um, you know, live with my parents or grandparents. So that was my first introduction, I guess. And then I just started watching it on reruns on, you know, every channel possible. Um, as soon as the DVD sets came out, I got them, you know, it was gifts for various, you know, birthdays, holidays, and it was just my comfort show. So I, I watched it. I, I don't even know how many times at this point and like fall asleep to it sometimes. And it just was something I watched and still watch a lot. And so I, um, was living in Ireland. Uh, I lived there for about eight years in the 2000s, I guess, the first part of it. Uh, and as usual, watching the Golden Girls over and over. And I started doing uh, a PhD in bioethics, as, as one does in their 20s. And um, the more I, you know, understood what was what I was dealing with uh, and the types of questions that raised, I was like, oh, well, this is actually an episode of the Golden Girls. Oh, hold on, this is an episode of the Golden Girls. So it became this, this way that I was able to talk about my doctoral research to other people in a way that was accessible. Instead of uh, like my actual topic was, are the, is the development of artificial wombs ethically desirable? I mean, that's not hard, but it's like a little bit weird. So um, it was, yeah, so the Golden Girls made it easier for me to explain what I did. But then also, once I started thinking about it, more than just a way to make it easier to explain to people what I did, I kind of realized, like once I went through it more systemically rather than, uh, or systematically, sorry, um, than just like Sophia's friend has to be there when she kills herself, you know, stuff like that, I realized that it was a theme throughout the show. It wasn't just a one-off, very special episode. I mean, there certainly were show, you know, episodes in that category, but because, as you mentioned, because we're dealing with four older adults, 
there are inevitably going to be health related problems popping up. Um, and not just end of life issues, but all sorts of things, everything from, um, you know, enhancement procedures, like when Blanche was considering plastic surgery, um, to whether or not to have surgery, to, um, what do you call it, uh, Blanche's daughter's decision to be artificially inseminated. Um, I mean, that wasn't necessarily um, the age-related thing, but, you know, they worked, they worked it out. Um, yeah, that was just something that, that came up so frequently, and each of the characters is so well-defined that it's easy to use them as a lens to look at the different facets of these issues. So when Sophia um, reacts to something, you know that this is a woman in her 80s, in the 1980s, reacting to HIV or reacting to assisted reproduction. And so you're able to explore other viewpoints as opposed to just, you know, the one that's supposed to be right. Um, and yeah, or, or, you know, Dorothy being this, you know, liberal, Democrat, open-minded, free thinker, whatever she calls herself. Um, you know, you know how she'll react in a certain way. Um, Blanche is kind of a wild card because um, she could be old fashioned and vain, but also like vary with it and be the voice of reason when you don't expect her to be. Um, and Rose is interesting because she's, like, she just tries to do good, which is like the, you know, underlying or one of the underlying themes of ethics in general is try to do good for other people. And that's kind of her ethos and how she arrived there varies. Um, but it's also, yeah, uh, an interesting way to look at, at these uh, topics as they come up. So let, can we talk about Rose for a second, just because I think you're right. It's, it's complex because she, she ar arrives at the good in, in weird ways sometimes, but also I feel like an ethical question that is, you know, sort of presented in the Golden Girls, often with the Rose character, is she comes at things like very simplistically and very just like trusting in authority and all, you know, she has that sort of, that that's her naivete. And as, as we know in the real world, and I'm sure in a lot of bioethical questions, especially, you know, related to healthcare, related to end of life, all these different things, it's not so simplistic. And also often maybe the first, your first gut inclination of what is good or right or morally just isn't actually, you know, what, what the, the end answer is, or the, at least the one with the most supporting evidence. Yeah, for sure. You're I think, absolutely um, right. Yeah, I, so, so what, do you, what do you think about that? Like how um, do, do these, like how, how does the, I guess Rose and Blanche probably more than Sophia and Dorothy fluctuate on how they deal with these different issues in the show. Could you talk maybe more, a little bit more about those two? Sure. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's completely spot on that Rose frequently has very visceral real-time reactions to issues as they're brought up um, and then may change her mind over the course of the show, maybe not. Um, and that's very realistic is that, and obviously things were like that before the pandemic, but you have a lot of people who just make a decision or take a position 
based on feeling or based on not science, but you know, something like that. And I think that's, that's realistic. That's a part of our world. And, you know, as we've learned about the importance of public health more, it makes sense to try to incorporate to include these people more in conversations um, because our health does. Uh, <laughs> uh, like I'm losing the. It's, it is in their hands. So um, it's it's it ha it's not enough to just say oh they mean well or you know you know we've gotten to the point where we really do have to sit down with people and have sometimes difficult conversations. Um, I mean, I know, and this is not related to age, I've had conversations with people of a variety of ages, but particularly some of the older adults in my life have just called and just wanted me to walk through what's going on, like whether it was the vaccine or when things first started. And, you know, that their initial reaction was one thing. And then once they learn more, it kind of like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So um, I think Rose is a great example of that. Um, Blanche is great because, yeah, I mean, she's really, like, you, there's no telling what her position on something is gonna be because like you have Sophia having to explain to Blanche that love is love, you know, let Clayton get married and basically giving a speech that would be applicable today. So you have her hesitant about her gay brother. You have her hesitant about her daughter being artificially inseminated. Although that's a case where knowing Blanche's background and how that informs her position really helps. Like, you know, she's all about uh, you know, sex and traditional relationship roles and for someone to willingly decide to take the end product, one of the possible end products of sex, but take the sex out of it, it was just beyond her comprehension. She conceives in a uh, in a hospital and wants to deliver in a bedroom. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so yeah, you have these situations. And then you have Blanche um, in the episode where Rose has the HIV scare, giving Rose the AIDS is not a bad person's disease speech, which I think is probably one of the most powerful moments of 80s television, because at that point, you know, Ronald and Nancy Reagan weren't fully on board with, uh, you know, looking at AIDS as a serious crisis for everybody rather than just, you know, quote unquote, gay cancer. Um, and so you had one of these beloved characters on national TV talking about, um, you know, it's not God punishing you for your sins. It's, she said stuff that so many, so many people, either said or thinking or wanting to say. And so that was a great moment, um, as was her speech in the drugstore uh, during the famous condoms, condoms, condoms um, <laughs> interaction when uh, she talks about safe and responsible sex. And in that context, you know, she was specifically talking about sexually transmitted infections because none of them are at the age of getting pregnant. So they weren't looking for condoms for the purpose of preventing pregnancy. They were looking for condoms for the purpose of not getting an STI. So yeah, so she's kind of all over the place in terms of, in terms of what she's okay with. And, um, but as we saw in the episode where she decides eventually to give her sister Virginia a kidney, 
even though she didn't need it, obviously, uh, to come form, um, she can change her mind and she might have initial, an initial reaction to something, but when you go through the, or when she goes through the process of looking at the risks and benefits, uh, you know, it makes a different decision. And that's, I think, very realistic. And um, I like that they showed that whole process um, throughout the episode, that it wasn't just one morning she wakes up and says, great, kidney, it's yours, after, you know, saying no in the beginning. So, um, yeah, they're, they're both great characters for looking at uh, that conversation over time. While you were talking, um, I had this epiphany that the Golden Girls all kind of really represent America collectively, you know, because Rose is, we talked to um, a another scholar, Kate Brown, who wrote a book where she uses Rose as a representation of like the failure of the American dream. And when you were talking about how Rose gets to her, gets, you know, like eventually only wants to do good and gets there eventually, but in these sort of weird ways and is very like, steadfast in her beliefs and the rules and stuff that mm. feels very American to me um but as does Blanche with her you know sometimes traditional values but in other ways willing to like move forward um so while we're sort of on that subject I know this is maybe an oversimplification but how do you think the Golden Girls did a good job representing bioethics? Like how would you grade the show's representation of the field and the decisions that were made? And, um, you know, both in terms of being realistic and also in terms of I idealistic, like, is that how it should happen? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I mean, some shows now, modern uh, TV shows like Grey's Anatomy and some of the medical dramas, do have a bioethicist consultant on staff that will, you know, read scripts and um, I don't know, maybe make dialogue suggestions as to, you know, how to get something across. Planned Parenthood has a dedicated person on staff who works with film, TV across the board um, to make sure that sexual and reproductive health content that, you know, shows up in, in various TV shows uh, is accurate and beneficial, but not in a, an after school special type of way where it feels obvious, but just kind of naturally integrated into the plot line. Um, that was not a thing in the 80s and 90s. And so you had a group of primarily young male writers writing what they thought was funny. So I don't know specifically you know, what their thought process was in terms of, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming they were not sitting down at the writer's table being like, well, we have to get a message across about what bioethics is. <laughs> Learn how to make more ethical decisions. Um, but it was absolutely a choice to have characters walk through the process of having an initial reaction conversations around the topic and then come to a decision. Um, I mean, and that's, you know, served the narrative as well and moved along the plot. Uh, so those are probably the primary reasons, but it helps. Um, also something that helps is that it was, you know, the show was very joke heavy, but it also let the jokes settle. 
So, you know, you had like a classic B. Arthur, you know, look of disdain reacting to something. Whereas, you know, shows now you have like a 30 Rock or Arrested Development um, or Parks and, you know, it's just joke, 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 which I love. Um, but with the Golden Girls, when something happens, it has like a moment to settle, which uh, is something I think we've lost. And in that time, you can also, again, this was not, I'm sure, designed for bioethics purposes, but kind of, you know, think about what, uh, what just happened. So, um, yeah. And as far as whether or not it does a good job, it's really hard to apply 2020 standards to a show from that period of time. Um, I mean, there are certainly areas the show overall could have improved, but that's the case looking back at any show from that time period. Um, but yeah, overall, I think they do a much better job than most, especially sitcoms, because you you expect this from St. Elsewhere, you expect this from ER, you expect this from, um, well, General Hospital, I don't know about what they were actually doing, <laughs> but um, you don't expect these lessons from a sitcom. And so I think <laughs> they're sneaky that way. So, you know, you're, you're not thinking you're going to come away from this Saturday night sitcom with a better idea of HIV stigma, <laughs> but there you go. So the covert bioethics, I think is, is, uh, is part of what works here. I feel like uh, the Golden Girls does a lot of those covert lessons very well. And I feel like as, as we've been studying the show more closely and talking to other scholars who have written about it, that's come up time and again, where like, it's interesting you mentioned the joke settling because there is a timing and a cadence and you can have really serious topic episodes and you remember the episodes, of course, for that. Like you remember Blanche's speech from the HIV episode and Sophia with the R cup, you know, and, and that type of scenario but like once we revisit the shows and look at it from like our scholarly perspective we're like this is like one of the funniest lines in the entire series and it shows up right in the middle of this like very very serious speech so i think um i think the show really balances that very well yeah the one thing that comes to mind when you say that sarah actually is rose when she's dealing with her 30 year addiction um but what fun you know but there's so many funny jokes and she's like you know super um the aggro towards the commercial producer and it's always funny to see rose angry anyway but it's a little i think you could make the argument that it's a little bit insensitive to just be like oh she just got off these pain pills and look what a bee she's being you know it's like there's not a whole lot of levity there but I think that is reflective of a larger style of, because, you know, we talk about this a lot, but most of these episodes weren't quote unquote, very special episodes. They were just regular episodes of the Golden Girls, like um, Not Another Monday, the one where Sophia's friend is considering taking her own life. You know, that is just a regular episode of the Golden Girls. And I think to your point, to have that featured in a way that I, I actually, in contrast to what I was saying about the um, Rose's addiction, I think that topic is handled particularly well. Um, and again, I think that also goes back to like, you can have that episode and have that plotline make sense when you have these four older women at the center of the show. Um, and you might not be able to do that if it, the show were about some, some other people. 
yes, because of the the age of the women of the show, it made it easy to to integrate the healthline plots without making it seem uh, too much. But that also was a huge benefit when it came to anything sex related or sexual health related because they were able to get away with things that the network would have censored otherwise. And, you know, if it was these, if these were women in their thirties talking about some of their cheesecake round table discussions, um, that would never, would never have made it. So they were able to cover more territory because of that also is, um, yeah. So they were able to accomplish more in, in that space. I, I never even thought of that of just like, I mean, think of sex in general being covered, but the specific health issues surrounding sex not being able to be covered um, is amazing. And that's that's in addition to all of the stuff that obviously the natural storylines of episodes for older women come across, right? My friend wants to end her life. She's older, you know, the nursing home uh, episode where Sophia's friend is is just like in a really shitty nursing home and there's an issue, you know, with, with what to do. Um, and even going back to like the Not Another Monday, there's so many layers of that episode too, because it's not just about the choice for Sophia's friend to kill herself or not. And it's not just about the choice of what Sophia's gonna do about it. But then there's the daughter, Dorothy is concerned about Sophia being concerned about this. And, and she brings up a good point. Like Dorothy talks to her, she's like, I'm worried about you. Like you're gonna be in that room alone. Yeah. How are you gonna feel, you know, after she kills herself? I mean, this, it's, it's really interesting because like the more, the more and more you're talking about bioethics, the more you can just feel all of the crazy layers that I'm sure you have to deal with in these sort of philosophical conversations every day. Yeah, that's that's a really, really good example. Um, it easily just could have been, um, you know, Sophia talking her friend out of ending her life, end of story. But yeah, I think, I mean, the main dilemma at the center of that story is Sophia's decision, whether or not to be there. And, um, you know, when she brings it up with the rest of the girls and they weigh in, I think that's also realistic because people, you know, bounce ideas off of friends and family. Um, and yeah, the uh, Dorothy's concern about the mother afterwards uh, is, or her mother afterwards is, is so realistic. And I don't even know if people in real life are thinking in those terms all the time. Um, because when there's a difficult medical decision, you're completely right. There are so many different layers. It's, it very rarely ever affects just the patient. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a, a great, uh, handling of that. Um, so while we're on the, the subject of sort of specific topics, um, you wrote about another uh, show that I love, Mad Men, and Betty Draper's, when she's dealing with um, the very end of the show, she's dealing with a cancer diagnosis, but also earlier in the show when she's seeing a therapist, and the therapist, just to give some context for listeners who have never seen it, basically, the therapist, instead of talking to Betty about her progress, like, has calls with her husband, Don, to, like, basically report on how Betty's doing, um, and the same thing when later when she gets this... Um, terminal cancer diagnosis, the doctor really just wants to talk to her husband and she's just sort of there, like, you know, the way that like a child or somebody with, with not much autonomy would be. So um, you wrote about that and that immediately called to my mind the chronic fatigue syndrome 
sort of saga. It's a, it's a little bit different because the doctors are just kind of being outright dismissive to Dorothy and they're, they're not talking to someone around her, but um, they are sort of dismissing her health concerns. And I think in both of these instances is very clearly because they're women. Um, and so I wanted to ask you both about the representation of that and at what point, if that was really happening, which I think we all know it was really happening, when did it change? And I guess like how much better is it now? Ooh, that's a lot. Um, so uh, first of all, when you asked earlier about whether you know the writing was intentional and I was like, oh, just a bunch of young men in a writing this episode is an exception because Susan Harris had chronic fatigue syndrome herself. And, you know, the, the writing was deliberate. The way the show came together was entirely on purpose to get the message she wanted to get across, um, which is something that in 2021 is definitely still a problem when you're dealing with chronic illnesses, especially invisible chronic illnesses. Um, you know, because if people don't see you, physically having whatever issue it is might as well not exist. So um, that episode is, is unique from that perspective. Um, and then, yes, paternalism in medicine or just this idea that doctors are always right. Um, and at this point, you know, most doctors are, are male and they know what's right for the patient regardless of anything else. And you're supposed to just go along with it. Um, I mean, it's gotten better, but I don't think it's totally gone away. So um, I think we're, we are as a society and as women getting better at advocating for ourselves because it's become more socially acceptable and it's not just listen to the doctor and whatever they say is, is uh, gospel. Um, but I think that episode could help people who are in that position realize what is happening. Like they might just think this is a normal interaction with a healthcare provider and then might watch those two episodes and think like, oh my God, my doctor doesn't believe me just like that. Like this is a, this is a thing. So um, yeah, that's, that was a hugely beneficial. Um, I personally have used that episode a lot over the past year. Um, because I, I've had COVID twice. My first uh, round began on April 2nd, 2020. I then never stopped having most of my symptoms. Um, and, you know, I would have these relapses where they'd be worse than usual, but I just, you know, I never, I, I don't think I'll ever be that person I was on April 1st but like with the same body, the same brain, et cetera. So, um, but especially in the beginning of COVID, cause I was one of the trendsetters who got it quite early. Um, people didn't believe you that the, that the symptoms lingered. It's definitely better now. Um, I mean, the NIH has recognized long COVID as uh, you know, a thing. Uh, researchers in the UK have been looking into it for months. So it's getting better, but in the beginning, I, was basically Dorothy every single day having to explain my situation. And I live alone in a one room studio in Queens. So, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, it's your depression, it's your anxiety, it's your that. I was like, 
but my hair is falling out and I have five different rashes on different parts of my body with different types of dryness levels and scales. Like, no, no, like my immune system is going crazy right now. So, um, and it actually got to the point where I went for my first in-person doctor's appointment um, because everything I had been doing up until that point was telehealth. And I had been there for three hours already waiting, answering the same questions over and over and over again. And basically they tried to pin everything on my weight and my anxiety. And they were like, you're an obese person with anxiety. Everything you've mentioned is because of that. And I was like, but I've been an obese person with anxiety for more than a decade. <laughs> like that's like that's not new, but what I'm experiencing now is new. And when they asked for examples, I basically recited what Dorothy said to the Jeffrey Tambor doctor. <laughs> I was like, you know, there are days when I, I mean, I don't wash my hair as frequently because putting my hands above my head to wash my hair is exhausting. You know, I'm too tired to speak sometimes. Like everything she said applied to me. And um, the doctor didn't seem like he would have a, a strong background in Golden Girls dialogue. So I felt okay doing that. Um, <laughs> but like, yeah, it's so realistic that I literally used it in my own clinical care in 2020. Like that's, that is something. I mean, that's not what it was intended to do. <laughs> it just was like a weird, and my brain was, I mean, I was so exhausted that it was just easier to recite that than, you know, and it was all, all true anyway, you know, then go through, uh, you know, my, my normal spiel. <laughs> so thank you, Susan Harris. Yeah, I was going to say Susan Harris would probably be very proud of the fact that her dialogue was so implanted in your brain that when you were too exhausted to come up with the original thought, you could say, hey, this scenario matches me. This is actually perfect. I mean, wow, what a lot to deal with. And also, I mean, we all joke and I'm sure you do too, where you just like, you have golden girls dialogue for any situation in your life, but never yeah. do you expect that you as a bioethicist would have to fight these battles about oh, no a disease. Um. Yeah, I mean, my personal <laughs> long COVID narrative does mimic Dorothy's, um, although I started off in New York, so I didn't have to travel here to, you know, meet with another doctor. So yeah. that is good. But I mean, I, I mean, I guess I, I, the one I ended up working with um, is in Manhattan. So I guess I do have to travel to a different borough, but like it took a really long time before someone took me seriously. And you know, even consider that this is a problem. So um, yeah, just kind of going through doctor after doctor. Um, like Dorothy, I also got very angry um, because of the restrictions on in-person dining. I've not been in a restaurant with one of the dismissive doctors. So I was not able to, you know, give him a speech, but I did report one to the New York State Department of Health and he's currently under investigation because I said, you know, we are in the hardest hit borough in, or at least in the beginning of the pandemic. And so, you know, when you have so many people who are sick, a lot of us probably have these long-term effect, long effects. And if you're just sending people away, telling them you're fat, you're nervous, that's it. 
you're overlooking some very serious health problems. And it turns out I have rheumatoid arthritis now. I have a heart condition now. So like, I do have legitimate things that have changed in my body. And I mean, they're not as serious as they could be, but if that doctor just keeps dismissing people and sending them away, it could literally kill people. So I went to the Department of Health with that. And um, yeah, so I feel like that was a, a kind of a Dorothy move. Um, yeah, yeah, what would Dorothy do? That's exactly, that's exactly the move. So um, yeah, they don't tell me anything about the investigation, but I can file like a Freedom of Information Act thing, I think once it's over. But um, it was more that I just was like, no, you can't, you can't do this to people. Like, and they were like claiming I was the first person to come in who had COVID months ago that still has symptoms. I was like, that's not true. Statistically, that cannot be. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that's been, that's been a, a frequent, <laughs> one that's come up frequently in the past year. Wow, but you, you did eventually find your own Dr. Chang, like a, a doctor that could actually take you seriously and I mean this is incredibly mimicking the parallel of the chronic fatigue syndrome episode because he has that speech where he says you know some of my colleagues like dismiss something that that they're they're not that's not in a textbook or they can't see under their microscope and just because like again this is an evolving disease why would you be so cocky as to be like yep it's not that I know everything about COVID it's existed for six months you know it's it's wild yes something almost identical happened because at one point it was actually a physician assistant who was like, I'm on the computer and there's no code for long-term COVID. It's not a thing. I was like, what? Because it's not in your computer system. You're saying it's not a thing? Like, no. So um, yes. So how I actually ended up finding a doctor was um, after I got COVID the second time against all odds and statistics and like, it's still a mystery. I uh, contacted some of the research studies going on in the city about COVID and, and, and long-term COVID especially and connected with um, a researcher and infectious disease physician at Columbia who has been uh, looking at long-term COVID for a few months now. And that's kind of become his area of focus. So I am, both his clinical patient and part of his research study. Um, so, but yeah, it wasn't, I mean, it was, I feel privileged and, you know, borderline guilty that I was even able to do that because I know how to navigate the NIH clinical trial website. Cause I used to work, you know, on a NIH project and, you know, was able to look at what the research that was going on, contact them about being a participant, knowing that, if I was taken on, I would receive at least some level of clinical care. And regardless, the people conducting the research knew and understand and acknowledge that it exists. So like the first hurdle was already cleared. So that's kind of how I had to approach it. Um, and yeah, <laughs> very eerily similar to the Dorothy situation. Yeah, and you know it's um it's both it's both heartwarming and disheartening, honestly, to hear that um, 
first that the, the Golden Girls representation of that was so accurate and honestly so important, I think, like you're saying, because not that so many people are like recalling that that dialogue in their head, but to have that on TV. And also, I think even if you were watching that episode in your house with somebody in your own family, which I imagine happened a lot, and you were like, do you see, like sometimes doctors don't know everything. Um, I feel like that's very, um, that's kind of a very special episode. That's not a very typical, very special episode, you know, like it's not, it's not something like HIV AIDS, which I feel like, you know, while very, very important, a lot of 80 shows tried to represent it to sort of do the very minimal effort of, of bringing that to American living rooms. Um, but this particularly women not being believed by their doctors, I think is something that obviously like we're still dealing with. Um, and it, it very much makes sense that it was Dorothy. And I'm very glad that there that end scene that you referred to where she gets to confront the doctor exists because most people will never get to do that. Um, you know, like there's there's other avenues, like like you said, reporting to medical boards and things like that. But um, that is so satisfying, you know, and even after hearing your story, that scene is much more satisfying to watch when she gets to sort of like dunk on Dr. Bud in front of his date. Yes, yeah. For sure. Um, although now that I am thinking about it, did Rose report her dentist to oh, the yes. dental board or the, or at least threaten to do so? I think she did. Well, I think it's implied that she did. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was like, wait a minute, that's another one. So I mean, very good on Rose. That is, it takes time. It's not just a thing where you're like, hi, dental board. <laughs> My dentist touched me inappropriately. This is Rose. Thanks. Bye. Like it's paperwork. It's hours. The amount of hours, like obviously unpaid hours I've put into dealing with things surrounding my treatment, but not actually my actual healthcare is, is a lot. Um, so yeah, that, that was, that was, yeah, good, good job, Rose. But also, yeah, good job, Dorothy, having that opportunity, especially to confront him. Um, well, the paperwork alone is why, uh, you know, the dean of Blanche's school didn't want to do her sexual harassment claim. Yeah. yeah, I was just gonna say it's like ethics in general, I feel like are so often sort of like, uh, it's, it's too much work. Like, don't yeah. say the word harassment, otherwise I have to fill out this paperwork. <laughs> right, yes. It, it, it is a process and we're all busy and I can see why a lot of people would not necessarily take the time. Um, I personally felt a moral obligation to do it because again, I'm in a privileged position where I have some other, uh, some additional information that an average patient might not have and was in the position to be able to say something that could affect care for others down the line. And so I kind of felt like I, I can't not say anything. That's pretty, that's pretty cruel. So, um, yeah, <laughs> but I don't know if any of everyone like, you know, goes through that process as much. Um, but, uh, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the, the I, going right back again to Blanche's harassment episode. That's what Dorothy says. That's why she encourages her to report it. Cause she's like, it's a lot of work and it's a lot on you, but you're helping people down the line to not have to deal with this. So 
that is awesome. Thank you for sharing that entire insane COVID saga that you are still on and still will be. Uh, I'm still in awe of the fact that you just lived a Golden Girls episode uh, and are living it in, in 2021, you know? Yeah. Can you think of... Um, can you think of other, I mean, we talked about a lot of different examples from the show. Are there, are there any other sort of standout moments for you or um, little, you know, like teachable moments maybe that, that stick with you as you do your work or as you just navigate, you know, healthcare <laughs> as, as an American? Sure. Um, there's a conversation that Blanche has with her plastic surgeon when she is considering getting breast augmentation. And, you know, he basically says, you know, there are a lot of risks involved with it. You know, it's a surgery. So any, you know, he doesn't, this is not a direct quote, but you know, it's a surgery. So anytime you go under the knife, there are certain risks and kind of talk to her as if she didn't understand or she, like, she couldn't kind of like wrap her little woman brain around it. And uh, she very clearly exercised her autonomy and was like, no, I'm, I've decided I want to have this procedure. I'm getting this procedure. Of course, she didn't end up getting it, but, and, you know, for a reason that's not ideal, you know, that she was appealing enough to a, uh, you know, other plastic surgeon that she doesn't need to make any changes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, um, I don't love how, you know, where, how she ended up there, she got there, I guess. Um, but I love that she stood up for herself in that appointment and kind of just said, no, I, I do understand the risks, but I'm, you know, still going to go ahead with this. So, uh yeah that's one that I like um yeah really the whole episode with, with Blanche and Virginia which we've already talked about and that really you know it's a drawn out I mean drawn out over 22 minutes but you know you see different parts of that conversation they're having um another one you mentioned already was Sophia's friend at Sunny Pastures um that really touches on uh there are four principles of bioethics and one of them is justice. And, you know, that has to do with health equity and making sure that people have access to the care they need. And, you know, in that particular situation, uh, Sophia has a quote where it's something like, you know, in Japanese, in Japan, they honor their older people and, you know, we kind of just leave them to die. And um, so, and I, I mean, because the pandemic has just exacerbated health disparities that already existed. This is something that, you know, we've been seeing a lot recently as well. Um, what else? Can I just, um, can I interrupt you for one second? Can you actually, can you talk about the four principles of bioethics? I think that would be really helpful sort of background. Yeah, I forgot this in the beginning. So, <laughs> um, more layers, more layers. I more love layers. It. Yes. So, I mean, this in itself is kind of an ethical issue, um, but in general, kind of the accepted textbook, like what's used are four principles of bioethics, which were developed by two um, surprise white men uh, in the 70s. And it comes down to um, Autonomy is one. So the ability to make informed decisions um, on your own, free from the influence of other people, free from coercion, free, you know, just everything informed and, and uh, 
for your own reasons is one. Um, then two are kind of two sides of the same coin. One is beneficence, which is the uh, healthcare provider's obligation to actively do good when treating a patient um, and to only take actions that will enhance, promote, protect their health. The other side of that is non-maleficence, which is usually you know, referred to as the first do no harm, um, you know, principle in medicine where you shouldn't actively do anything that would harm the patient. Um, and of course there are times when certain treatments will have side effects or will potentially harm the patient. And that's, you know, where the bioethics comes in. You have to, you know, weigh the risks, risks and benefits. Um, and then the last one is, is justice. And it's making sure that the benefits and burdens of research are shared equitably. Um, and yeah, kind of just looking at health in, in general and making sure people have access to preventative care, uh, you know, regular treatment, post-care and, you know, end of life care. Well, I mean, old, older adult nursing home type of care as well as end of life care. And um, yeah, that it shouldn't be like one particular group who can afford things being the only ones who are able to get the care they need. Um, so those are the four main principles. And I mean, they show up other places like the Belmont report in a slightly different format, which is the report that came out in the United States in the mid seventies after the Tuskegee syphilis study became oh. known. Um, and so that kind of kicked off. I mean, at that point we already had um, the Nuremberg Declaration, which was really kind of the first uh, documentation to enshrine the idea that you can't just conduct research on a person without their consent. Um, and yet uh, in the United States, we, we very much still did and in some cases still kind of do. Um, and yeah, when uh, the 40 year Tuskegee syphilis study uh, was yeah made public uh, in 1972, I wanna say, uh, that's when the government was like, oh, we have to address this. So they you know, put together a committee and then they came up with this report and you know, those are kind of all aspects of that. Um, and then there are other you know, types of, other places you can find bioethics regulations. Um, my personal favorite is one from the UN, um, from old UNESCO, they, it's a convention on bioethics and human rights. And they have, I think, ooh, I don't know this off the top of my head anymore, maybe 17 principles um, instead of the four and they're ranked in order of importance, whereas the four autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, justice are not. And so it's a little more precise. Um, also what I like about that one is that, um, because it's from UNESCO, you had multiple people from different countries and probably different genders working on it. So it wasn't just like what two guys think in America. Um, so, but those are the ones that are, you know, most commonly used and taught. So like in my class, um, and yeah, anyone anyway, at the classes, I always, you know, tell them about that because it would be weird if they left my class and like, weren't familiar with these guys. Um, but then, you know, when it comes to what you can use for your paper or stuff like that, I'm like, you can use another one if you want. And there are others too. I might like, won't get into specific um, pieces of international uh, 
regulation, but um, yeah, so that's, that's that. It's, it's fascinating that they're, I mean, and heartening for sure that so much thought has been put into this and it's just, I'm sure every single day and there's new diseases, new issues that, that arise that I'm sure could, you know, like amendments to the constitution, they should constantly be cycling through with new information, new inputs from different people, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, we've seen that a bit throughout the pandemic is that, um, you know, you've had these ethics boards and, um, you know, experts from across the country meeting and trying to come up with revised guidelines for, um, you know, situations where there's limited resources and um, like a plan, you know, what type of plan the hospital should adopt or even the vaccine rollout. So, you know, you kind of have this general idea of who's gonna get the vaccine first. And then you have this committee within the FDA. I mean, they're independent, they're convened by the FDA but they're not affiliated with the FDA uh, who are the ones who make these national regulations. And then, you know, states kind of have their own levels of priority. So it's very much a, a, a process rather than just like, we have this list, we will always follow it. It's something that these conversations are ongoing. And even as the rollout happens, you know, some states are prioritizing healthcare workers over older people. Other states are, you know, it's so it's, we're seeing it in action on a very regular basis right now, the evolution of these types of, of regulations. It's just, it's just amazing how there's a lot of meta going on right now in this conversation. I love ethics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just, it's so fascinating. Um, yeah, sorry, that was not very Golden Girls related, but... Um, no, but I mean, it, it, inter it interplays and it's just, I think, I mean, you, you've taught us so much and our listeners so much today too about just like thinking about these specific scenes in the Golden Girls and specific speeches, some of which, you know, we think about all the time because they're sort of classics and some of which are not as much, um, but thinking of them in a new context, you know, I mean, not out, outside of the context of just being old women or being women or, you know, being um, mothers and daughters, etc. cetera. Uh, there's just, there's a lot to think about and unpack, which is really cool. Did you, um, do you have anything else you'd like to share just like thinking about, you know, if people want to learn more about bioethics, but also through pop culture, I think is just such a fascinating way um, to, to sort of absorb more of it. And like you said, from the very beginning, you know, the Golden Girls help you put your work in context for so many people. Is there anything that you would like to, you know, sort of share with folks? Sure. As I was talking about the vaccine, I just had a an idea i mean i'm super behind in all my work but i would love to write like not an episode but like how each of the characters would react to the vaccine you know whether they like which ones would be super gung-ho about it like would sophia remember polio and like what life was like before vaccines and be like yes put it in me and then maybe blanche will be hesitant i don't know i'm so not something I have, I really should be doing with my time right now, but uh, some, <laughs> something I think would be really interesting. Um, but to answer your actual question, uh, yeah, I think we overlook sitcoms as these just vapid 22 minute chunks of fluff. And a lot of times they are, um, 
but that's where it's like the sneaky bioethics lessons or just ethics lessons in general. Um, Seinfeld is another very uh, kind of prominent example of that. Again, you have four characters with very distinct personalities and, you know, the way they navigate life and their different decisions, um, you know, is, is kind of clarified through the different characters. Um, yeah, most shows have at least some component of, because everyone has to deal with some sort of health-related issue at some point. Um, and, you know, when you sit down to watch a medical drama, you know what you're getting yourself into. You Like the drama literally comes from bioethical issues. Like that's, right. <laughs> without bioethics, there would be no ER or say, I mean, there, I mean, there's the romance, but it would just be like doctors making out in closets. There would be that dramatic component. Um, and so you expect that from shows like that, but you don't necessarily expect it from shows like the Golden Girls. Um, so I think that's what's what's exciting about it. And I know, so I, I haven't taught it for a few semesters, but I teach a class specifically on ethics and pop culture. And, you know, at the end, my students frequently tell me that I've ruined television for them because, you know, they can't watch things without thinking like, oh, they're having a conversation between a parent and child regarding, you know, healthcare decisions. So um, once you start realizing it's there, you're gonna see it everywhere. So I apologize to everybody for that. Um, and what was the other question you asked? I can't remember. Well, just if anything, uh, you know, that you would want other people to know, like either about the Golden Girls or just about bioethics and, and their own curiosity or their own ruining of their own television watching. <laughs> um, I mean, you can go and read different regulations if you're curious. Um, or like if you're dealing with a sick person or you are the sick person, look at your hospital's services. A lot of times hospitals will have a bioethics department or at least a bioethicist on staff that could help walk you through these issues. In fact, um, when my mother was nearing the end of her life, um, we were in you know her hospital room and we were, it was like the conversation where they're like, we're, we're done. Like we, there's nothing else we can do. Like we have exhausted every possible treatment. You know, right now we're talking about how to make you more comfortable. And so they went over all the different options. And my mother sits there and she was like, "I would like to speak with a bioethicist, please." And they were like, "Oh, oh, you know of that option? Okay, great. We can arrange that." And she was like, "No, no, no, that one. My daughter is a bioethicist." And I was like, "Oh God." Um, <laughs> So and they were like super impressed that she came out with that. Um, and I mean, that was a tricky situation because I could write, weigh in professionally, but I was also her power of attorney and the one actually making her medical decisions. So um, yeah, but uh, I guess don't be afraid to use us as a resource um, if, if you were a family member are, are in that situation. Um, and also I have to say that the new generation of bioethicists um, coming up, you know, in their like 30s, 40s, 20s, I guess, um, is much more diverse than what we've seen in the past. I mean, even compared, so I started working in bioethics in 2009, and even between then and now, there's been a huge difference. Um, and that's made a big, uh, a big impact on what's considered important bioethics issues. So before the focus was very heavily on abortion, end of life care, doctor patient relationships, 
um, research, that type of thing. And then now as we're having more women and people of color entering the conversation, we're saying like, okay, well, yeah, those are all great, but also the social determinants of health that make certain populations more prone to chronic illnesses, that is a, is a bioethics issue that we have to handle. And just that has been very heartening to see, um, you know, over the past 10-ish years. And a lot of my uh, colleagues that I work with closely now do not look like any of those old white men in that picture um, <laughs> from my presentation. Um, so, so that's good. The field is expanding in a very good and very necessary and overdue way. That is amazing. Thank you so much for, for being so open for, you know, explaining a kind of heady concept uh, through not only the Golden Girls, but, you know, through your own experiences and everything. This has been awesome. No problem. I'm always happy to talk about my health and Golden Girls. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, check out Dr. Elizabeth Yuko's TED Talk. Um, we'll, we'll host it on enoughwicker.com, but a quick Google search will find you there as well. So thank you so much again. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.